Hello and you are very welcome to episode 50 of Dan and Dara Do Ability. I am Dara McNicholas. And I'm Dan Airy. Dan, it's just something uh, you pointed out to me last night when we were having our little uh, production meeting. This is our 50th episode. It is. It is. We've reached a landmark. I'll go wild. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Um, yeah, I thought we'd get here quicker uh, than it's taken us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you seem fairly happy with the length of time it's taken us, but... I would, I think, yeah. I mean, I think originally when we started this, Dan, I was looking at two episodes a week, if I if I recall correctly. Yes, yeah, I think yeah. I think we were, yeah. I think it's just it's what kind a of... looper. <laughs> I mean, seriously, two episodes a week, not a hope in hell. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think life got in the way of that one. Yeah, pretty bit. much. I, I don't think we appreciated at the time exactly just how much actually goes into getting it together and all that stuff. Um, yeah, so maybe we'll just kind of have a somewhere in the middle. We'll have a kind of a 50th anniversary blooper reel of Dan laughing. Yeah, that's yeah. gotta come. At some stage. Yeah, at some stage. Yeah, and all the things that Dan's told me to cut out. No, you can't put that in. You can't put that in. Take that out. Take that out. Take that out. Yeah, maybe I'll just put all those things back in again. Maybe we should have been doing that from the start, really. Yeah, the more I think about it. So, how was the week, Dan? Good, good. Um, I managed to get back on top of. Uh, back on top of kind of work and, and things like that because it was kind of getting a bit overwhelming um, a couple of weeks back. So we seem to be on top of things. How's things with you? Good. You got your video done? Yes. I had a look I at did. it last night and gave you my critique. You did. You did. Yeah. Very... Which was, no, yeah, which was fine. I, I didn't exactly slaughter it. I you, did, you certainly I didn't. Slaughter. You very I didn't nice. slaughter it at all, actually. I think I have to qualify that. Um, we might put the link up for that as well, actually, when we're, when we're putting out the podcast, because it's, uh, it's a good piece. It's worth a look. Thank you very uh, much. Yeah, no, it's been, uh, I'd say it's been an interesting process because you haven't actually been on your tools since, yeah, I suppose it's been over a year, really. Uh, yeah, no, it has been quite, quite strange. Um, but I suppose we adapt and thrive. Ooh. If you want to put it that way. Oh, that's deep, Dan. That's, that's deep. And you also did your uh, Alfred Hitchcock thing and got yourself into your own movie. Yeah, is that is that going to be a, is that going to be a forever thing with you now? Every time we see a Dan Dan Airy production, he's going to be in the background of this wheelchair, just gliding past. Going, what are you doing? Absolutely not. Okay, that fair enough. Yeah, a... fair enough. I don't, I don't, I don't believe you. Um, right. Well, that's your choice. <laughs> no, it is. Now, Dan. Uh, today, we're very fortunate to be joined uh, by Catherine Gallagher. Uh, we Absolutely. did speak about uh, Catherine's um, plight there uh, a few weeks ago, um, which thankfully has been sorted out now, mm-hmm. I believe. Well, Catherine's going to fill us in on all this. Um, Catherine is a, a sort of re- recent graduate and she's going off to do her PhD. So, Catherine Gallagher, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Delighted to be on. Excellent. Now, Catherine, tell us a little bit about yourself. Now, I just learned you're from. I was going to say the bottom end of Ireland, um, but the most far distant, I think the next stop is New York, really. Yeah, we did be catching the, the transatlantic, transatlantic flights um, was in past now, not, not as much, not as often the last past year or so. But yeah, my name is Catherine and I'm from Ackle in Mayo and I do my PhD now. I've I started, I'm, I'm researching the media and the political communication response to COVID in Ireland. And prior to that, I studied journalism uh, in DCU and I went on to do my master's in political comms, which I 
really enjoyed and it was always my intention to go back to journalism and go back to to radio in particular uh, which is where I had my most bit of experience but I caught the research bug and um, I wanted to just keep going with that so I was very fortunate initially to be landed with a scholarship uh, after I applied and there was a bit of a, a kerfuffle after that which we'll probably get into a kerfuffle I think you're just so polite Catherine yeah, that's that's very nice way of putting it. Ah, right, Dan, go on, get stuck in here for the the, the kerfuffle. I suppose. Well, one thing that's interesting me actually is uh, where your your interest in media began. Um, to start off with, because I suppose you you were mentioning there where you you said you were interested in kind of journalism and media and radio and that kind of thing. So where did that begin for you? I think it was really, it was circumstantial and just part of the lifestyle uh, that I would have had, which was just um, trekking up and down to Temple Street for a very long time. Just my family, you know, my my family, my my mum would listen to the radio, she'd watch the six o'clock news, the nine o'clock news, papers would be in the house just one or two throughout the week. And my family and my parents were very ordinary Joe soaps, couldn't get any more ordinary Joe than us really. Um, so my parents would have kept an eye on, you know, certain things like even in the sitting room, you'd ask for help for something maybe when I was younger and, oh no, let me catch the headlines first, you know, that kind of a way. Um, and then how like trips to Temple Street came into it was from Ackle to Dublin is like a four, four and a half hour drive, depending on the traffic. And that trip was being done very often from my surgical treatment and appointments and even down to Galway or even from Arco to Castlebar. So what do you have in the car? You have a radio. So I loved listening to, to Radio 1 and so my guilty pleasure even when I was very young was Liveline and I used to know the okay, I used go. to know kind of the schedule of that. I used to know the schedule of, of Radio 1 uh, inside out and my regional station as well Midwest um, I used to really um, enjoy their, their kind of morning, mid-morning stuff. So it was really from thousands of hours in the car, I just listened to the radio and I'm a very, I'm not a visual person at all. So I, even in college, I would have struggled with um, the video journalism side of things. I found it physically very difficult um, dealing with big cameras and whatnot. I hated it. But radio is, is one of those things you can sit down and listen and you can sit down and do your recording and do your editing. Being a reporter and being on foot is something that doesn't appeal to me as much, unfortunately. Um, journalism has a lot to address in terms of its ableism within the, the industry between working environment and being on foot. Long working hours as well um, that aren't family friendly either, you could argue. So it was really just circumstantial and loved reading as well. So loved reading the newspapers and any kind of a magazine or anything I'd I'd be reading. So it was just just by ch- just by chance, really. So ableism, that's the first time it's done. We haven't heard that one yet, have we? Uh it, it's something that I I would have heard of kind of in, in passing, but it's it's definitely not something that we we've made. No, we haven't discussed that. We've I'm making I'm making a note of that one. That actually ableism. That's because all these new words, all these new uh, terms, and how we're kind of um, yeah 
disabled and non-disabled, we have been spending a little time uh, talking about the language of, of disability. Um, and that's that's a new one. Thanks very much. Uh, that's going to cause me pain now looking into that. Thanks very much, Catherine. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, I think, Dan, you you were kind of similar as well with the camera sort of issue. Yes. Yeah. From, from an access point of view, just in terms of being able to get into it, I suppose. Uh, with with the tripods that we had uh, in the undergrad, it was a little bit of a little bit of an issue to say the least. To kind of being able to get as hands on as I as I needed to be, um, which is where the the use of a of a PA comes in very handy uh, and is vital. I, I'd say for for me. No, that's that, that's that's definitely. I just, yeah, I suppose it's not until I suppose you're exposed to or, yeah, you're talking about journalism as a career and being on foot and access and, yeah, and the, the savagely unfamily friendliness of it, I suppose. Again, it's, it's not something you think about until you kind of go, yeah, there's all those talking heads. There's poor old Zara, whatever her name is, every 5.30, there she is, standing inside in uh, for TV3 in side in the doing another you know whatever conference it is and she's telling us how many people are dead and the many people have are after have been diagnosed with covid i suppose you know it's an all-day thing really isn't it yeah it it really is and it's such a shame because the industry and then as, as a byproduct media consumers i know people don't like using the word consumer when it comes to media but that's what we do we consume media um so I think I think we lose out as an industry because we can only we can only benefit from having more disabled people in in media. Similarly, like in my situation now, more disabled people being in in higher education and postgrad education, more disabled people in politics. The the, the benefits you can reap from from that are just you know phenomenal if if, if we would allow for that. But yeah, it's physically very demanding, and I suppose it's something that. It was was hard for me to acknowledge because I originally, for a long, long time, I wanted to be a doctor um, when I was a teenager. And then I kind of had to uh, look at that and be like, mm, I don't think that's going to suit my lifestyle uh, so much. So I had to park that. And then media was the next thing in journalism. But, you know, for, for I like that with, um, let's say, for a video that I find very um, frustrating. I, I would try and play to my strengths. So like if I was doing group projects um, with people, working with people with video, I do the presenting or I help do the, the sequencing beforehand or I get landed with all the editing at the end, which I, I do enjoy editing. I find it very relaxing. So you can play your part in other ways. And then if it came down to media, I would just prefer to be in a more stationed kind of a, like a, like a newsroom or a broadcasting role. But I do think going forward, Zoom, like we're doing this over Zoom, um, Alice Palmer, who is a BBC uh, journalist turned radio producer over in the UK, um, he's, a, he's a disabled man and I've spoken to him many times and he's, his opinion now is that, as the man says, it's going to be very hard to say no uh, to provide access now to disabled journalists going forward because because Zoom, because the internet, because remote working. So I do think it's going to be very interesting over the next couple of years to see how the industry uh, adapts and kind of picks itself up again. And in times of crisis, which is COVID, any kind of a crisis, 
worldwide, there's going to be a change. There's going to be social change and hopefully industry change and professional change. So I suppose we'll just have to watch the space and see, because I, I think we've all really acknowledged the, the work-life balance now uh, the past year um, and how maybe working from home has, for some, for some people, has allowed for that a bit more. So I think we're going to see more conversations of hopefully equity of access. And, and yeah, sure, access like this was created overnight for every non-disabled person uh, all over the world. So... Yeah, we have we have discussed that actually about where we're going to be post um, sort of lockdown and post the pandemic. I, I I don't share your optimism. I don't think it's going to be. I don't, I don't think it's going to be as good as it can be. Yeah, again, I, I t- we thought at the start kind of we're kind of going. You know, everyone's in the same boat now. Everybody is almost living the life of a disabled person because they're restricted in what they can do. They can't go out. Everything's over Zoom. But I think. Everybody has adapted to this now, mm-hmm. and where I where I would have uh, where I totally agree with you, where it is a level playing field. I still don't. We you still don't see the disabled people or the people with disability. And okay, granted, like we're sitting here now over Zoom, and I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at Dan, and neither of you are disabled. From a visual mm-hmm. point of view, there's absolutely nothing that's going to differentiate the three of us. We're all sitting here talking heads, waving arms. Great. Um, but I just I fear that it's just not going to be the way it could be or the way it can be. I hear that as well, as well. and I, I think t- t- to try and and get a, as most of a positive um, opportunity going forward. It's these conversations are so important. We need to kind of keep keep the pressure on, keep having the conversations, um, and look. I I wish I could really write about this stuff a bit more often if I had the time, but. Um, I think in Ireland, I've been saying this the past couple of years, but I, I think now there's a different kind of momentum now. But we seriously need a whole and complete and absolute shakedown uh, and shake up of our framing of disability, how we talk about it, how we frame it, how their government frames it. Who, who, because the personal, whether we like it or not, the personal is always political and the whole kerfuffle of, of the legislation in, in recent, recent weeks has shown that, you know, if the political will is there, there's, there's, there's change. But, but in order to kind of keep the pressure on, we, we need to keep talking about it and we need to um, highlight the benefits of it. And the, the other thing, the last thing I'll say about it is, well, the whole working from home crack is great you know for some people we need to make sure that disabled people in a post-pandemic period also have a choice whether they want to work from home or they want to be in the office or they want to be on foot or on wheels or on a mobility scooter you know doing the reporting if it was a journalism job and we need to make sure people have a choice so people aren't just forced to stay at home because uh, you can be disabled and be like you can be extrovert and want to be out all the time. I think there's this, you know, assumption that we're happy to be at home the whole time. And sometimes that's because we don't have a choice. Unfortunately, maybe we don't have PA access. Maybe we live in, in, in rural Ireland where transport is, is not there. So I think I completely hear what you're saying. And so... I think more, more engagement, more discussion on it, and um, 
make sure that everyone has a choice as so far as impossible. Well, then really just, to, 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 just to flip back on that, and I'm, I'm going to let you in. Sorry, Dan, I'm just I'm plowing on here, right? But just to flip back on that, then you're talking about the language of disability and, and, and what people are talking about. We've had we have had some right clangers when it's come mm-hmm. to our, our very government and some mm-hmm. of the things that they have said and some of the ways they've put it. That's one thing. But then on the other hand, then we're talking about Zoom and it being a level playing field. Uh, will it be an opportunity then for employers to just go, ah, sure, listen, you know, if there's a Zoom position, but, but we can sort it out. Uh, then again, maybe not. You know, but yeah, the whole sort of normal children thing. Yeah, no, that was awful. You know, and, and, that's from, and that's from the woman who wrote a book about it. Uh, you know. Yeah. Park it over there, chicken, and just, dear God, stick a pen in it, I'm done. You know, at the very highest of uh, of our government, and and kind of you're going, Jesus, what chances anybody got? Genuinely, what what hope have we got? On that, Catherine, I was just curious. Do you would you agree with with or or disagree um, in saying that those with disabilities have to be activists in order to kind of get along, so so to speak, in, in in society and in, in life in general? I, I, think, I think it's a really interesting question. And unfortunately, I can't give you a straight, um, straight, you know, black and white answer maybe that you're looking for. Um, I think, you know, you can see yourself as an activist in your own personal capacity where you're just advocating for yourself, you know, yourself dealing with government departments, you're not necessarily speaking for, for the masses. But I think... I think it's unfair to expect that every person, a disabled person, needs to be engaged in activism um, because it's 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 emotionally uh, so demanding, um, emotionally, mentally, physically, um, it, it's so demanding and it's challenging and it requires certain kind of skill sets, you know, um, a, a way to communicate, a lot of research, communicate with other people. Um, so, you know, I think it's unfair to assume that everyone should be engaged with that because not everyone is is just geared up for that, you know, uh, because we're all, we all operate differently. But you can absolutely, like, in, in some ways, you're, you're kind of nearly always having to advocate for yourself, and sometimes that's enough um, for you, you know, to to kind of deal with and manage. And yeah, like you're right. Unfortunately, like we have to um, work harder. <laughs> not maybe not uh, work hard, play hard. We have to work harder, and maybe we don't get to play maybe as much as our non-disabled peers. Um, and actually, the other thing as well is that disabled people often might stay in education, like do their bachelor's, need to go on to do their master's. Some of us end up doing PhDs, although not a whole, I don't have the exact figure, but there aren't like thousands and thousands of us either. We stay in education, we come out, and sometimes we end up being overqualified for jobs. And we have difficulty getting jobs because of that. Or we have difficulty actually getting access to a level seven or a level eight in the first place. So the activism thing, I mean, it, it speaks to me to, to a certain extent. But I think my, my academic sort of background and my media background um, 
helps me to engage in it a bit more. But I think what is really important, I was saying this to Dan um, before uh, we were recording, um, at another time I, I said that, you know, I think it's really important to be able to connect with people that you identify with, be it publicly or privately. So being able to, to talk to other disabled people, especially like if you're a young person to chat to other young disabled people. And for me in Ackill, I didn't really know anyone that I can converse with that had um, similar experiences. And really since lockdown started, I've been involved in, in different things and a couple of DPOs, disabled persons organizations. And that has been so enriching for me and, and a very fast education of that as well. And talking about ableism, talking about the social model of disability, talking about, hey, it's actually not my impairment. It's not my conditions that actually upset me on a day to day. It's actually what's outside my front door. It's society. What, dis what disables me? I can only speak for myself. What disables me is not my scoliosis or my arthrogryposis or my neuromuscular condition. It is social structures, political structures, lack of policy, thinking about people like me. So from that point of view, I think it's really important to talk to people who you identify with, because as humans, we naturally gravitate towards um, certain groups that we identify with. And um, it's just a human thing. It's, it's deeply rooted, you know, even from our ancestors, the kind of tribal sense of feeling connected. Um, so I think it's really important that you just get to chat to other people in similar situations, not exact situations, but similar because yes, you're, you're not alone, that kind of cliche thing. And you can learn so much from other people. It's It's been fantastic now for me to just connect with other disabled people of all ages, all around the country. It's been, um, so if you don't want to be an activist, which I can completely understand, I would encourage you to at least people listening and um, just just connect with with others where you can. I, I completely agree with you. And uh, big shout out to our friend James Colley, who we've had on before, because uh, you were mentioning to me that you were involved with um, ILMI, the Independent Movement of Ireland. So um, I'm glad to hear that that's all going well for you. And, and just on that, actually, because you were saying about what disabled you is is the the social structures um, that society has in place at the minute. And I suppose that kind of comes back to the issues that you've had around your fight to be able to do to do the PhD. How does that whole process, I suppose, make you feel when you've like, I suppose, put, put in all of this incredible work and congratulations on that to begin to begin with but then to to be to, to be turned around to and said that oh no like if you do this you're gonna lose all the supports that you have and there's been development on that which we'll which we'll get into in a minute but i'm just curious about how that makes you feel you know when when you're told that you've got a scholarship to do a PhD and then they turn around to you and say you're going to lose all your support. It was it was it was devastating. Uh, it was devastating. It was 
<laughs> it was heartbreak, you know, it was absolute heartbreak. And any whatever breakups I had in the past, my God, they didn't uh, they, they didn't um, match this at all. It was absolute heartbreak. Um crying on the phone, social protection, crying on the phone to the disability allowance department. It was I I lost a lot of the strength actually physically in myself and in my legs uh, the first couple of days that I um, was was learning this. I actually physically just nearly passed me like shut down the shock and that was upset, that was heartbreak and then that turned into anger and frustration and well I suppose I put my social model view of disability hat on and I put my political hat on and I put my equity of access hat on I was thinking this this is a systemic barrier for me to try and better myself I do eventually want to work I want wherever that is whether it's back in media with you know maybe I can get a nice number somewhere or it's it's in research or it's in lecturing or it's in a think tank but then I thought about it and I thought the irony of this is is that if I accept this and I'm educated, disabled and penalised and um, the irony of it is is what if because my my PhD pertains to media and politics and political comms that's going to be very interesting to the, a future government um, I think um, so imagine if I ended up working or consulting uh, in, in Leinster House and I'm kind of working alongside the legislators and people who make the law and sign off the law and I said, yeah, I got here. I'm here because I was allowed to be on the poverty line to get my PhD, to be able to help smarten you up on your political comm methods or your media methods or how you communicate with the public. And when I thought about it like that, like a, like a potential situation, it might not ever happen. I might want that. But I, I thought about it as a hypothetical. I was like, that is crazy. Now, that's a very niche example, but it's how I was trying to understand it. And then I, and then I, the more I spoke with other people and other people who, who were in a very similar situation, I was like, this is, this is madness. This, this is something that actually doesn't make any sense. Because when you think about it, the 16,000 euro stipend for a scholarship is money that's already there. It's in an account in the college and public colleges, for the most part, are as well uh, registered charities. You're on the charities register, which is very interesting because there was potentially legislation all the way along that would have let you accept income from a charity or non-profit and DC was on the charities register. But anyway, uh, I'm not a legal expert, but it was always there and I found that out at the end. So the 16,000 euro was always going to be there. So that's going to go to someone anyway regardless if they're disabled or not. The disability allowance is coming in to me anyway. It's 10,500 a year. It's, it's, it's not a lot um, by any stretch. So the, the money is already going, or going to be going around. So I don't see how I'm financially, you know, causing a dent in the public exchequer here. I don't see how, I don't see how I'm causing any damage. Um, so the more research I did, now I have to say that the, the, one of the most distressing things about the whole thing was actually the information seeking exercise element to it. 
trying to find out the information because I was being told from the department, you will lose everything if you accept this. But I was saying, why? Why? Because I need to know the reasons why so I can put together an appeal or I can put together an account, account, counter argument. Uh, maybe that was the journalism uh, bit of me kicking off, the, uh, the researcher part of me kicking off as well as wanting to know why. And I have to say, I, I contacted organisations who I would expect to know the ins and outs, but unfortunately, um, I had to drip feed myself the information independently. So it was very much with a couple of help, bit of help from one or two people, but it was mostly myself. Um, so yeah, it was absolutely devastating, but then then the frustration kicked in and then I was like, okay, I need to do something about it. And I started on the, with my letter writing and getting onto my local representatives and everything that followed from that. So yeah, that's, that's, that was the process. And then that has developed now into Catherine's Law. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, Catherine's Law, um, there was essentially a media and political campaign behind the scenes um, about this barrier, about, specifically about PhDs and postgraduate access and being penalised and by being on the poverty line and that was being highlighted and I engaged with local and national media um, my contacts there really did help me a lot uh, to give me a platform there and so I, I do see I'm privileged from that point of view like I do think my background really did help um, but the, before I actually get any further I would say this was a long-standing issue way before I ever learned about it people were talking about it way before I ever learned about it it, it just came to a boil very quickly very recently that's that's all. Politically, it was hammer and tongs, uh, constant, uh, constant phone calls, emails, following up with texts with, with ministers and politicians and feeding them new information and putting it to them, you know, really putting it to them and um, saying, like, you need to see this as an investment. So Catherine's Law then, to cut a story short, it's a piece of legislation that will allow you to, if you're disabled and in receipt of disability allowance, you can accept a PhD only, a PhD stipend or scholarship anniversary to a maximum of 20,000 euro per year, which is actually a couple of thousand more than what I'm getting actually at the minute. So that was sound of them in a way, I suppose, after all that. Um, so 20,000 euro per year across the four years and your disability allowance. I understand from reading the regulations recently that um, it should not be means tested. So you can accept your stipend in full, keep your disability allowance in full and just be able just to do what your non-disabled peers do is just enjoy your PhD and the challenges that come with that when you're in it. But um, that's what happened. And... Um, yeah, my name is attached to, to the issue, my picture is attached to the issue, but it was long-standing way before I ever learned about it. But um, one small step, one very small step, I will accept it's a very small step for the community, but hopefully it instigates a bit of momentum in others to uh, come together and, and speak out on other issues.
Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, the work you've done on that, I think it'll set a, a precedent and I think that's very important. Um, so from my point of view, and I think I'm, I'm speaking for a lot of people who are in similar situations to ourselves, we're very grateful that you you have um, you had the courage to to speak up about um, an issue like that and and take it taking it to where it is. No, you're very welcome because um, as I as I said, I think it's it sets a precedent and I think it's it's something that it, it shows that those with disabilities are here and we want to contribute. Um, and I just want to say before we finish up, um, um, all the best with with your PhD. I think it's it's something that is incredibly topical at the minute. Um, and thank you very much for for sharing your story with us. It's been it's been brilliant. Thank you very much. I've uh, yeah, I've kind of in instigated a lot of my feelings from a couple of weeks ago again, which is good. Keep me on my toes. But yeah, uh, thanks for listening and uh, thanks for having me. Super. Thanks very much, Catherine. Uh, so this has been uh, the centenary uh, 50th episode of Dan and Dara Doability. I have been Dara McNicholas. And I'm Dan Airy. And we'll talk to you very soon. <laughs>